Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 191 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to have Michael Sira, a connected technology business leader with over 20 years of experience growing new businesses in mobility and the Internet of Things on three different continents. Michael has led operations, strategy, and product teams with U.S.-based enterprise software startups and ran the IoT businesses for TELUS in Canada and Telstra in Australia. Michael, welcome to our Moment to Digital Thread podcast. Well, hello, Ken, and very pleased to be here. Always looking forward to having conversation with you. Well, I greatly appreciate that. We've obviously got a long history. For those who don't know, we'll talk about it in a few minutes, but I have thoroughly enjoyed all of our conversations over that time. So it's high time that we actually do something recorded together. And so, you know, this is our digital thread podcast series. And the idea, of course, is to really focus on one's personal digital thread. In other words, the one or more thematic threads that define their digital industry journey. What would you consider to be your digital thread? Well, you know, Ken, I thought about this. I've got a couple I'd like to walk through. The first one probably starts way back in 1996. I left behind about five years in the finance world here in Toronto after finishing school, and I moved to the States to join an internet service provider, or ISP, for those of us who remember that acronym back in the 90s. I think really what I was most keen about, I was really taken with the idea of TCP, IP, DNS, and the ability to really locate, connect, interact, share information with anywhere, anytime. You know, I had been a finance guy, but I really started to pick up on, started to read and appreciate the technology opportunities around the internet. The ISP that I joined was a company called Digex, based in Washington, D.C., was one of the first nationwide IP backbone networks that had been stood up in the States. They were also one of the very first companies that got into the business of web and applications hosting that, of course, has morphed into things around, of course, cloud compute over the last 20 plus years. I really wanted to get into, I think, the business of building products. I had been a finance guy, as I said, but the idea of going out and really sort of building end-to-end solutions that people in the marketplace would really come to enjoy and embrace, that was something that became of great interest to me and really a place that I wanted to pursue. The problem I had at the time, of course, was, as I said, I was a finance guy. And all I really knew was financial analysis and modeling spreadsheets. So when I got to Digex, that was the deal that I had cut with them. I spent a year in the finance department. And then about 12 months into the job, there was an opening that came up to take over their internet dial-up business as a product manager. I was lucky enough to get that job. And I'm really, I've spent the better part of the last 20, 25 years, you know, sort of in or near product development ever since. The second digital thread began with the discovery of NTT Docomo's iMode service. So for those of you that don't remember iMode, it was one of the first really successful mobile internet-based services that enabled applications to be presented and people to interact with apps via data over a, a mobile 
again, the idea of the internet here was always of great interest. But on top of that, we had this anywhere, anytime element in terms of mobility. This was just absolutely stunning to me and something that I was drawn to. So actually, right around the same time, I read an article, Verizon Wireless, which at the time was a joint venture between Vodafone and Verizon, was looking to start up a new product organization that was going to be a dedicated standalone team based in Washington, D.C., so away from their their corporate machine in New York to go and really develop out wireless data. So this was something that was great interest. I wanted to pursue this. And again, I had a bit of a problem that at the time, I didn't know a soul in the wireless industry, uh, much less anyone at Verizon. However, a friend of mine had managed to meet a Verizon executive in New York in a hotel elevator and managed to get his business card. He shared that person's email address with me. I wrote a very long email explaining how I could in detail help this new wireless data team in terms of develop out their business. That email address actually belonged to, if anyone remembers, a gentleman by the name of Ivan Seidenberg. He was the chairman and CEO of Verizon. So unbelievably, I sent the email and immediately I received a response. And about three weeks later, I was actually interviewing at Verizon and managed to get a job in their product team. I was one of the first two guys that they hired to run what they referred to as their enterprise applications team, which was quite interesting given that they didn't have any applications at the time. I mean, this was right around the time of Verizon launching their 1XRTT network. This was back, would have been in 2001 that I joined, and uh, the launch of that network was in 2002. Again, this was now really how I anchored myself into mobility, wireless data, and focusing on the B2B market as a place that I've been really ever since. So I think rather in terms of the business itself and what that, that sort of second thread, whether it's developing field service applications, working on a feature phone, working with back then good technologies or BlackBerry or more recently moving into machine to machine and IoT, I've always really been drawn to the challenge of developing technology for the market. And most importantly for me, it's the business of, of ease of use, easy to consume by the customer, easy to sell by the channel. Those are sort of the elements that I find most compelling and most exciting as part of getting up every day and trying to develop businesses for the market and solutions for the marketplace. So quite a story, especially, I guess, new, brings new meaning to elevator ride pitch <laughs> in terms of getting the email address that your friend did. That's wonderful. You know, what's interesting, Moment is coming up on our own 10-year anniversary. and. I think one of the real pleasures of the business is working with people like yourself over various aspects of the professional journey. And I'll be honest, I hadn't appreciated your finance background, but I've seen it now that I think about the work you were doing at Telstra and the Ventures team and TELUS and Emerging Business and such, always at that forefront of the application of technologies toward, as you say, easy to sell and easy to use solutions that are in there. So I'm curious, if I were to go back and look, so you've done about 20 years across Verizon, Telstra, and TELUS, what would you say were the top three insights you gleaned from this time relative to the IoT? Sure. I mean, firstly, I'll set some context here. I'll start with Verizon. When I first joined them, I mean, as I mentioned, we were really early in the wireless data journey back then. There were regional CDPD networks here in the States, but Verizon had not yet launched a nationwide network. That came with 1XRTT, as I mentioned, in early 2002. With that 1XRTT network, that was Verizon's first 3G play. 
the value prop at the time was really focused on simply network speed. So that was the story, was a fast network to do things on. We had two devices. We had a Sierra Wireless Air Card that allow you to access your email and your laptop with some difficulty, I would say. But nonetheless, that was the starting point. We also had a Kyocera feature phone that supported WAP with a WAP gateway support. So basically, it was WAP-enabled applications. And that, again, was essentially for checking your email. So, I mean, the first insight was the realization that the key to scaling mobile network adoption was going to be content and applications, which in turn for us that, you know, with myself and one other person, our job was to really get out and start finding partners that were developing and building applications for mobility. And that was really where we were grounded for most of my time at Verizon. It was developing apps. It was looking for partner ecosystems, onboarding those applications, and really trying to scale up an application ecosystem for B2B. Fortunately, at that time, there was a company called Nextel. Some, I'm sure, remember Nextel here in the States. They had a network here, a nationwide network, IDEN-based network. It was, importantly, I think, with Nextel, they were really, I think, focused on B2B with their push-to-talk network. And what they had managed to do, frankly, is develop a really good pool of B2B application providers that we were able to leverage as being companies that were more than interested in terms of looking to build applications for Verizon as well. So we started to work with those companies, and I frankly do tip my hat to Nextel. Their focus that they had early on in terms of developing vertical markets and a way to create applications specific to vertical markets and the ability to really create relevance and to really create stick with the customer around a specific vertical opportunity That was something that they developed really well, and that was something that we brought into our playbook quickly. So things like construction, transportation, field service, these were the areas that we felt were strong, and this is where we focused at Verizon. I'd say the second insight, I'll flip over and talk about Telstra. I think that really what I learned there was how you go about sort of introducing and growing disruptive businesses within a larger organization. You know, at Telstra, we started the machine bit the M10 business, machine to machine business back in 2009. And there again, two of us in the product group then set up to set up two of us that have been set in place to run the M10 business. Unbelievably, or Telstra, pardon me, had about 2,000 products that they were selling and supporting at the time back in 2009. So trying to make a lasting impression with your B2B sales force with no handset solution and no customer references around something called MTEM was really a challenge. And so I think the key insight for us at the time at Telstra was disruption. We felt that it was important for us to really focus our market and our narrative around really tight messages. So first, we went with a less is more approach in terms of focusing specifically on simplicity, customer ROI with just two products. We were very early at Telstra in terms of launching a SIM management platform from a company called Jasper Wireless, which, of course, became very successful and was eventually acquired by Cisco. And secondly, we had a lot of focus on one application for vehicle tracking with a company called Navman. It's a New Zealand-based company. And then secondly, and frankly, what was probably even more important, we enlisted C-level leadership at Telstra to really help us sort of over-communicate that story within the company and then out to the marketplace. 
We had people that I worked for, like Ross Fielding, Warwick Bray. These are gentlemen that ran the mobility business at Telstra. Mike Wright, who ran the network down at Telstra. They were just extraordinarily supportive and keen to drive the MDM story within the company and out and really were key parts of the success for us in terms of building out the M10 business at Telstra. I'd say that the last insight really, and this one I'm pulling from TELUS, was the business of having good discipline in terms of market segmentation coverage. And really when you're in the IoT business around connectivity, having a really strong delivery process to scale. So, you know, in large telcos, there's often a tendency to focus on large customers, the Fortune 500, for example, as a way to try and grow IoT. I think a good deal of success that we saw both at Telstra and moreover at Telus came from attracting and winning IoT developers in the mid-market as our focus. They, in fact, were sort of the lifeblood of the market. I think they really have been and still are to some extent. They're the ones who are embedding connectivity into their applications and their devices and on selling those devices into the marketplace, both consumer and enterprise. So that's a key success factor, I think, and a key part of IoT is working with that mid-market as a focus point. And then the second insight that I took away around IoT is that IoT products, selling them through an operator in an operator context, I mean, the churn is really marvelously low. There is really an opportunity to establish a customer relationship and to grow that over time. And we found at Telus and Telstra, for example, that establishing a relationship, having good process to keep them as a customer, they would simply grow their business and that we would participate in that growth. So typically we saw sort of anywhere from sort of 15 to 25% year over year growth from those companies. And so it's simply a matter of maintaining the relationship and growing with these companies. And we were all able to participate in that growth over time. So I would say that was sort of the last insight was really working hard to focus on mid-market and taking care of those mid-market customers and IoT. So let's take that last point and drill down a little bit. I know that you went on to lead TELUS's IoT efforts overseeing, in fact, several acquisitions that were there. Tell us a bit about your strategy here and what you're most proud of. Sure. I joined TELUS in late 2016. I think what most attracted me to TELUS was the chance to really accelerate growth on top of an organic IoT business connectivity business by investing in vertical software businesses. And, you know, large companies, they certainly talk about innovating and the importance of looking beyond their core practices to create new opportunities in the market. But it's tough to do that. And I came to understand and learn about TELUS that they were really focused on this and they were truly executing. TELUS, for those that don't know, it's a Canadian telecommunications company. But they are, in fact, through acquisition, they are also the largest IT health services company in Canada. So these guys have really talked it and they've executed, they've done it in terms of going into new markets. So the mandate for us at TELUS was to aggressively scale the IoT business through acquisition and through venture. And our strategy was to really keep our activities tight by limiting our focus to just one or two verticals. So we started first with smart cities. And our way into smart cities was really through through point solution providers. And our focus areas specifically were around sectors like winter operations, uh, snow removal, waste management, public works, construction, and traffic intersections. All of these uh, sub-verticals, they had strong ROI propositions and strong fundamentals in terms of how they bring value 
to the market. And we saw that as being critical to both engaging with our sales channels, but getting buy-in from our salespeople, as well as getting adoption within the market. Having that ROI case nailed was something that we saw as really critical. In terms of the highlights I take away from TELUS, I'd say there's really two. I mean, first would probably just be the growth achievements we had. TELUS was really late to IoT. When I joined the company, they were, frankly, I think they were last in the market among the big three Canadian operators in terms of market share. And over the course of the four years there at TELUS, we moved our market share dramatically. We passed the number two provider. And frankly, we were right on the heels of the number one player who's been in the IoT business for a very long time. So making that market share game was really fulfilling. We also, just in terms of tripling our base of customers, making dramatic improvements in terms of top line revenue, profitability for the company, we really did well. I'm really proud of the work that the teams did at TELUS. And secondly, I'd say the highlight, probably even more so, as it relates to the acquisitions, it was the business of really executing on that strategy that we had developed. So it was finding the right targets, uh, was moving the case through the company, you know, earning the excitement and the, the buy-in of senior leadership at TELUS, making the acquisitions, and then successfully integrating those IoT companies into TELUS. You know, that business of acquiring and integrating disruptive new technology businesses into a large established company, that is not for the faint of heart. It's difficult, but it's also a great deal of fun to to, to pull it off. And I'd say that was probably the biggest thing that I take away is sort of the number one thrill in terms of working at TELUS. Well, you mentioned both uh, M&A and uh, ventures, and I noted you actually rolled up your sleeves per se and not only invested in a company called SI, that's E-S-E-Y-E, even though it sounds like a SI as in a system integrator, but you actually went and, and played an operating role in there recently. Tell us a little bit about the company and how you supported their growth. Sure. SI is an IoT MVNO or virtual network operator. So they, as a company, they're focused on really removing IoT complexity for the enterprise and specifically around enterprises that are looking to deploy connected devices into many different countries over cellular networks all over the world. SI has established network integration agreements with many of the world's leading mobile network operators. And essentially what they've done is they've stitched together all of those physical networks to form one sort of global IoT network that they offer out to their customers. They've got about 2,000 customers today, including four of the Fortune 10s. So really company that's focused and successfully focused on going after the large enterprise in terms of global connectivity. I came over from TELUS after the company made a, the venture investment last year. And my mandate has been to really help scale the business through creating new channels to market. We've added a number of new operator partners. We brought in global integrators like IBM, as well as module manufacturers and security software companies as partners to really help scale up our business in terms of new channels, new ways to customer. That's really been the focus. It's been a lot of fun. So I know given the deep telco background you have, you've uh, been clearly an early and often advocate for 5G communications, especially their application to IoT. How do you think the 5G opportunity is progressing and what is holding it back from more adoption? And when do you see these thresholds being met to gain more adoption? So that's a great question. 5G, really interesting topic, certainly. I'll start with what I think is going well. I mean, I think here in the States, the carriers have 
their sub six gigahertz or what they call their mid-band 5G spectrum services. Those are all launched now. And so for the sort of the mass market consumer audience, I think we're seeing actually some good benefits. I read about a 50% improvement in terms of, of speeds. So download speeds going from 4G to 5G over the last couple of years, speeds have increased on average by about 50% here in the States. In terms of another benefit or another positive on 5G, we've got fixed wireless access. That market is really starting to develop. In fact, I think some would say so far that's been the 5G killer app to date. Fixed wireless has been very effective in terms of lighting up or providing faster service opportunities for customers, particularly in rural markets who didn't have the quality of coverage and speed that they've been able to get now from 5G. So I think that too has been a positive. I think the other positive certainly has been for the operators themselves. 5G is bringing down their download costs and providing more capacity for themselves and for their customer. I think that when it comes to where things haven't progressed as quickly as some might expect or would like to see would be if you start sort of with the marquee sign around 5G, it would be largely for the enterprise. It would be around ultra reliability, high device density, low latency. These are sort of the elements that people have talked a lot about and touted as part of the 5G narrative over the last few years. I think there's still a lot of work to do there. And frankly, I think, Ken, there's a bit of an expectation gap that maybe has been created in the marketplace. If you look back, the first sort of complete 5G standard that addressed all of these advanced capabilities that I just described. So ultra reliability, massive machine communications, effectively those standards were not really brought out by the 3GPP, which is the group responsible for essentially rolling up these standards. That did not come out until the first full standard came out, I think in 2020. So from the time that standards are released, you still have devices to build, devices to test, devices to certify, over networks, and moreover, application environments that need to be developed, launched. All of these elements take a great deal of time. And I think this is where we need to sort of do a bit of a reset to let this time play out. I mean, for context, in terms of the timing gap between standards and actually applications hitting the market, I mean, if you look at 4G, for example, 4G, the standards, they were released, the first releases started coming out in 2008. And applications that took advantage of 4G's faster speeds, they came later. Things like Snapchat and Uber, which would be examples of a video-centric application and real-time collaboration, respectively, in terms of Snapchat and Uber. These applications, for them to perform, they really needed 4G, and they didn't arrive until about three to four years after the standard. So I think we need to reset in terms of giving that time to play out from standards through to delivery into the market. I would call out, though, as well, I think there's another risk here, or there is a risk in terms of time to market around 5G. With 4G, which really, I think, was directed predominantly at the mass market smartphone audience, that market, you really had two well-established development ecosystems in place. I mean, you had iOS and Android in place, ready-made for people that were already in place to develop the applications to support the 4G opportunity. If you fast forward now to where we are with 5G, which again is supposed to be really directed most towards the benefit of the enterprise customer, we really don't have well-established well platforms on which to build 5G applications. And also the promise of 5G really to be delivered 
out in terms of exposing network services via API to the market. I mean, this is an open question as to how this is going to be executed. I think building an environment that exposes network services is still something that really we have a lot of work on. How and where are those services going to be exposed? How are they going to be accessed by developers? How are they going to be consumed and monetized for 5G services? I think there's a great deal of open questions that need to be addressed there. Now, certainly, I think this presents an opportunity to the market, but also suggests that like 4G, we're going to have to be patient before we start to see those applications come out at scale for the enterprise. Really, on the OT side, we're seeing a lot of interest in private 5G. Can you tell us a little bit about this and why do you think it's of such interest in the digital industry space? Sure. Private 5G, private for LTE 5G, I mean, private networks aren't new. We've had Wi-Fi networks for a long time. We've had spectrum slices of things like 4G networks. I mean, they were auctioned off on, to private business going back 15, 20 years ago. I think what's new It's the enhanced capabilities that come with 4G LTE and now with 5G that offer businesses the opportunity to really plan and deploy and moreover control their own personal dedicated cellular network and take advantage of these 5G features that I described earlier. I think that's what's quite interesting. I would say that because these these private cellular networks use the same tech as the public networks like the Vodafones and the AT&Ts of the world, there's also the capability of being able to switch or roam from a private network onto a public network when outside of that local private coverage. So I think this opportunity is really quite important and, and disruptive, I think, for a number of reasons. I mean, you've got the industry demand around in terms of the digitization opportunity. We've got now With increasing force, these high-performing organizations and industries like mining, manufacturing, warehousing, just as an example, who really want control, visibility, and certainty over their operating environments. And empowering these companies with the ability to self-manage and administer their networks, to really set their own rules for scalability, access control, priority, you know, device access prioritization when is scheduled downtime for networks, having all of that within their own hands. I mean, that's that's a game changer, really exciting stuff. I think as well, we've got recent regulatory changes that have come Western Europe and the Asian markets around allowing 4G and 5G wireless spectrum to be purchased. And even in some markets like the US, uh, used for free with CBRS, that there's elements of CBRS spectrum that are now being made available to businesses I mean, this spectrum gives in-country businesses the opportunity to deploy in their own high-speed networks for the very first time. So I think that also is a mover that's unique and important in terms of this opportunity around private. And I think the last thing would be just the fact that there's a growing value chain. There's a tremendous number of companies that are now actively marketing ostensibly out-of-the-box private network solutions to the enterprise. So I think that as well is disruptive and important in terms of the opportunity in terms of or 5G for private. Now, I would say that private, similar to what we talked about earlier in terms of adoption, I think private 5G is still not without its challenges. I think there's open questions as to how these businesses are going to sort out the complexities of planning, designing, scaling, managing, and even paying for these private networks. I think a great deal of open questions yet for a company to try and sort through as to how they address all that. And as you know, Ken, it's it's a fragmented ecosystem. 
in terms of supporting this, I mean, in terms of devices, infrastructure, applications. I think probably a lot of open questions for a company looking at private 5G as to where to start, who do I start with? And I think at the end of the day for me, I think those companies that are looking to address this market, I think that those that are most focused on removing complexity for the customer, really having effective partnering strategies, easy discovery and understanding of their solution, really smart on the POC process, ease of deployment, will be the ones well-placed and having the best chance of really kind of making it happen in terms of private 5G. Look, I appreciate the breadth and the depth of this interview and clearly of a track record that supports this as well. I noted that you're actually finishing up your time at SI and be very curious, what's next for you? Well, I'm as bullish as ever on IoT. And I think at this point for me, what I'm focusing on is specifically looking to start a business. And really the focus of that business is really playing off what I believe to be the maturity of remote monitoring as part of the sort of the core proposition of IoT. I think that the tech is there. It's well-placed in the market. And for me now, it's the focus is looking at applications and specific use cases in the market as to how you can really create a strong ROI case. So that's the focus is looking to build a business out, really focused on the ROI opportunity to take to a few different marketplaces. Awesome. And I thought I sensed a hint when you talked about all of the opportunities in earlier conversations today. So that's great. And certainly as a a venture investor as we are, we always love new businesses and well-seasoned founders per se. So we'll look forward to hearing more. In closing, I'm always curious, where do you find your personal inspiration? Well, a couple, I guess. uh, One is I love reading about innovation. I'm really drawn to And I mentioned, I guess, a little bit of this earlier today in the podcast. I'm drawn to large companies and how they manage innovation and deal with those 10x changes, as Andy Grove called. I think that I find that fascinating. So looking at guys like Clayton Christensen, Andy Grove, those would be probably two of my go-to authors for me in terms of innovation. There's also a book I recommend called Lead and Disrupt. It's written by Charles O'Reilly and Michael Tushman. It really gets underneath why some well-intentioned, well-capitalized companies innovate brilliant and brilliantly and why others do not. So, and without giving too much away, so much of it comes down to really two things. It's the sort of, firstly, it's creating what the writers call that ambidexterity in the business, which is that uncomfortable separation between the traditional core business that pays the bills and the new exploratory business that needs to test and fail to find a new way forward. And then the second thing it talks about is you really need that strong leadership at the highest levels to drive the business. You need the champion that's going to stay in front of the exploratory business in terms of their ambitions, because in many cases, there's threats that come to that core business and that core business may start to flatten, decline, makes it all that much more difficult for the exploratory business to succeed. So having that leadership that can see that the developing business through, that's required and a critical success factor in terms of innovating in the marketplace for bigger companies. The other thing I would say in terms of sources of inspiration for me would frankly just be the people I've had an opportunity to work with. I'm really inspired by working with people that have similar senses and passions and ambitions around innovating and growing new businesses and really looking to go for change without compromise. That's really what I get most charged up about. Excellent. Well, Michael, thank you for sharing this time and these great insights with us today. 
Thank you, Ken. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. As well. I appreciate you taking the time. So this has been Michael Serra, a connected technology business leader focused on the intersection of emerging technology and connected business. Thank you for listening. And please join us for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.